Hello and welcome back to the Comic Literate Podcast, the podcast that does deep dives into the best of comic books, graphic novels, mangas, penny dreadfuls, web comics, newspaper comics, essentially any single frame illustrations where the characters use bubbles to talk or think. I'm your host, the soon to be known as Comic Stan, and with me as always is my convivial host, it's convivial. Jamie. Convivial, convivial that's yeah. a word, right? But convivial let means sort of friendly, less than talkative. Yeah, but you're that as well. Not just one oh, thing. I don't know, Imagine a, a talkative person who wasn't friendly. How would that work? I'm thinking there's going to be one. It's um, a it's um a complainer. It's Andrew Tate. Yeah, he talks a lot, doesn't he? Yeah. Unfortunately, but he saw a ghost in his uh, cell the other day, so I think things are on the up. <laughs> I guess maybe Is he, he posted <laughs> something about seeing a ghost, and everyone was like, "You're going insane, aren't it you?" Brings me joy that I keep seeing his brother in the same now very tatty suit. Mm. And him in that same t-shirt hoodie combo that he got arrested in, looking more and more bedraggled and beardy. Mm. Which brings me so much joy. This is one of the subjects that I'm going to cut off purely only because, and you know that this is rare of me to cut off a subject on this bloody podcast with the amount of tangents we take. It's just one I don't want to give air to. I was like, yeah, don't want to bring it any more into the conversation. Already is. I already kind of partially blame the people who did initially. Yeah. So, you know, fuck them all. But we are back in the house, your house specifically, yeah, uh, where we house. record uh, your mansion, as we've established. Absolutely. 10, ten 14 rooms. The palatial yeah. space. Exactly. And we don't have any news this week, which is good because it means no one died. So Nobody's that's dead. always a plus. It's also news that's two months behind. So if anyone's listening <laughs> to us for their comic book news and it's two months delayed, that's like quite a niche audience that I think we could really corner the market in, you know? Yeah. I mean, we've, we've just started uploading. We currently have one listener. One subscriber. So we've had like eight downloads or so. But I don't want to keep the numbers going too much because if we get like a hundred episodes in, it's like, how many you got now? Like, I think we've had 14 downloads. (laughs) It's like, let's just keep the numbers on there. Before you know, by next week, we could have a million. We could have none. So let's- We're doing well. Yeah, exactly. Let's let's create the air of success. And then the actual success- will be faked as well, because we will fake it regardless. Yeah, of course. Exactly. We're doing very well here. Yeah, we, we are doing amazingly. Um, there was one little thing I wanted to bring up, which it's not news. It's just a thing that I heard and thought was cool. And also, it's related to your boy, Alan Moore. So We have Alan Moore news! It's not quite... I don't know when this came out. It wasn't quite news. But I thought you especially would appreciate this, right? I saw a thing, it was an interview he had of a, I think it was a short, book of short stories he released. Yeah. And one of the stories, he was actually being interviewed by, who is uh, Richard Herring? He was being interviewed by him, I think. Or Robin Ince, one of those two. I always get those confused for some reason. Different people. They are very different people, but it's one of those kind of like British comedian slash interviewer slash podcaster, one of those kind of people. Is I think it, it was Richard Herring. Is it the guy who used to do a two-hand with Stuart Lee? Yeah, yeah I, that's who I'm then thinking that's Richard of. Yeah. Herring, yeah. But, I, but I also get him confused. <laughs> it could, you could have sorted in <laughs> with a lot of British white middle-class comedians. Yeah, like Bob Mortimer. Yeah. You can um, only tell the difference by like if they're Irish or Scottish. Otherwise, they all fall into the same. So Dylan Moran yeah. sticks out. Ed Byrne. Frankie Boyle. Uh, uh, Dar O'Brien. I was thinking yeah. of Conan o- O'Brien. <laughs> but they have the same spelling surname, but they say it differently. They do. Well, yeah. I mean, because Conan O'Brien says it with a distinctly New York accent. Yeah, but he's, he's one of those Americans who's like, I'm Irish. It's like, he, you're, you're not. Mate. He has the look, though, doesn't he? Oh, yeah. He looks <laughs> He looks so Irish, it hurts. <laughs> to go outside. In the um, sun, yes, of course. <laughs> 
But so um, they were interviewing about this, the collection of short stories. And I yeah. think the guy who was interviewing, whoever it is, he noted that he thought Moore had one of the best opening lines of a story um, that he'd ever read. Okay. So the story, I'm not sure the exact synopsis, but the, it's generally apparently about the Big Bang or yeah. relates to the Big Bang, or at least the beginning of the story is about the Big Bang. I want to tackle in a short story, isn't it? Well, it's more though. He's like, yeah. he'll okay. he'll take any subject <laughs> and like, I'm running with it. It's like, yeah. can we do Superman's fantasies? Like, can I make his dad a Nazi? What? <laughs> I'd never go over. I've, I've been editing that episode. I was just listening to that back. Like, that's still, I'm still not over that. Was, yeah, it's messed up, isn't no. it? But he had the short story about the Big Bang and yeah. the first opening line of it is, are you ready? It was the best of times. It was the first of times. Alan Moore. That's really good. Alan Moore. <laughs> oh, mate. I oh. thought you of all people would appreciate. Oh, that's great. A, a literary scientific pun, essentially, for lack oh, of a better word. I fucking love a pun. And a, a pun based in so much as well. If you hear meowing, naturally we've got the cat on standby. She's um, horny cat. She's ready to provide analysis, uh, but only in the form of meows. So yeah, absolutely. Make that what you will. So now we dive on straight to the old corners, which we've been kind of slack whether we do them or not, but I feel like I've mentioned it now. So I've I've mentioned it, so we kind well, of have to now. I have something. You were sat here before we started recording. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. Racking your brains about something you've seen that you could bring up to fill a corner. Accusations. False accusations. Fake news. Yeah, for all fake news. All right, let's, I mean, since you've said it, you might as well start with yours then. And then um, I'll I'll go through my my list to see if I can find something. <laughs> just rag your brain. I, I think I watched an episode of The Big Bang Theory this week. Does that do? I'm literally just going to watch a phone, uh, watch a film quickly on my phone while you talk, <laughs> and they'll be like, "Yeah, I've been watching um, what's this on TikTok in 25 <laughs> second bursts." Come on, hurry, upload. <laughs> um, yeah. So I've been reading. I finished Spare. It was mm. galling. Um, I'm now an ardent Republican, and I think Harry should be king. Um, and I've I've started reading a an edition, a really beautiful edition of Oscar Wilde's fairy stories that he wrote for children. I say, I'm looking at the book from here, and it does look like a beautiful uh, front cover and uh, design. Mm. So I've read Oscar Wilde's complete works a couple times, mm. um, but my partner bought me this edition of his fairy stories, and so I decided to reread his fairy stories. I've just been reading The Happy Prince, which is so beautiful. It's so gorgeous. Do you know about Oscar Wilde's fairy stories? Uh, not anything bar past Oscar Wilde, generally who he was. So give us a brief synopsis if you can. He made them up as bedtime stories for his children. Ah. And so he would improvise and tell his children bedtime stories. And then, you know, he'd be walking down the corridor on the way back from their room being like, that was actually pretty good. <laughs> that bollocks I just said was actually pretty good. Yeah. I forget that I'm Oscar Wilde. I should do this for a living. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, he, he would tell his children bedtime stories and sometimes he'd go, that one was pretty good and write it down. Um, and so they're these beautiful bedtime stories with morals. They're very much in the, in the, they're, they're Wildinian stories, but they have a lot of the kind of thematic elements that the Grimm's Brothers stories have. Just to interject, is Waldinian is that an established term, or is yeah. that one you've coined? Because no. if you'd coined it, I was like, that's a pretty good term. But It's knocking about in my brain somewhere, which tells me that I haven't coined it. But if anybody is listening and they can't find a dictionary definition for it, can you pop it on dictionary.com? And credit. And credit me, yeah, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. Because Waldinian is beautiful, isn't it? 
it's it definitely it's like a picturesque like it's like once you know what it it's nice sounding and once you know what it means it's even better yeah because picturesque when i first heard that, i was like well anything could be a picture and i was like oh i, I get it now yeah, yeah yeah it has to look you know you know it has to look if if it conjures an image in your mind that bob ross could have painted mm, it's picturesque that's picturesque yeah because it's from a time when not everything could be picturesque so like technically yeah you could take a picture of uh like an empty crisp pack on the road you'd be like well technically it's a picture but back when the w- word was first created a picture had to be painted by an expert mm. and they were like i'm only doing naked babies and flowers that's the and christ those are the only three things i mean that's renaissance art isn't it yeah things got a little bit more um landscapey in the victorian era do you know in <laughs> You're laughing already, so this better be good. <laughs> in the seventeenth century, pineapples in England, because they had to come so far, cost the equivalent of a million pounds today. Yeah, I could see that. And so if you could afford a pineapple, you would only eat it once it would rot started to rot. Mm. And you would use it as a kind of table decoration for many, many weeks before you ate it. And there's a lot of paintings from the time that feature pineapples. And to the modern eye, it's like, what the fuck was their fascination with the spiky fruit? But of course, it was a it was sign a, of wealth. It was absolutely it was a display of wealth that not only could you afford a million pounds to buy a piece of fruit, you could also afford to get somebody to paint it mm. in the three week period before it went rotten and you ate it. This sounds kind of like a parable um, in the vein of NFTs. It's like, <laughs> I'm buying it because it's expensive now. And it's going to increase in value. Oh, no, it's rotten and died. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to eat it, and now it's poison. <laughs> I really, yeah, no, NFTs were great if you got in and out very promptly. Yeah. But I've stopped hearing about them. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, they'll probably come back in some kind of like, you know, um, cyclical fashion where things become popular again, like Pogs or Beyblades, you know, be like, NFTs are back. I imagine if the metaverse ever takes off in a meaningful way, NFTs will become the artwork that you decorate your metaverse space with and they'll become relevant. But yeah. I, that's the only instance in which I can see them. But they'll be like, they'll, there might be a market for them, but they've got to be cheaper. That's the thing. They can't be like investing, it'll become more, it'll worth more and you can retire from. It's like, buy the picture, you put on your thing, and it's like 25 pence and no one steals it because it's not worth barely anything. I think ostensibly, um, ostensibly, finger quotes, they will be decorations for the metaverse space. Hmm. I think if they're going to retain any value long-term, it will be in the same way that physical art does, which is that it's really all just a big fucking tax write-off. Yes, and that's what it was to a degree as well. Like hmm. It was a pump and dump and it was tax write-off, and, but the, even tax write-offs have to maintain their value to a degree, and well, the NFTs were way too volatile for that. Yeah, absolutely. Problem. And this, But this is the thing with physical art. They've been doing it for 100 years now, hmm. where they will buy a piece of art, for an extortionate sum of money yeah and then donate it and that charitable donation is a tax write-off absolutely and that's why the artists who paint these fucking dog shit pieces of work are normally family friends of the rich people who buy them yeah it's all a fucking scam and we are exposing it right here right now and it's why it's why artists like banksy get really fucking upset when their work changes hands well that's why he made the shredder yeah Yeah. the shredder what a legend that's so fun (laughs) Working class hero who is probably a billionaire. And well, quite it's, rich. it's interesting because he's not made and sold that many copies of his works. I mean, most of his really, really good stuff was painted on walls for free. And then someone managed to take it or keep yeah. it somehow. Yeah. 
Well, that was an interesting corner. Uh, Thank you. Are, are you done talking about Oscar Wilde? Is there any more you wanted to... I could talk about Oscar Wilde for longer than I can talk about our comic books. Right. So I'd better stop. So at some point, we will find an <laughs> Oscar Wilde-inspired comic and we'll do that. Uh, for an episode, that'll be okay. the Oscar Wilde episode. Because there must be, like, he's written books. They One of them must have turned into or influenced a comic at some point, right? Well, he only ever wrote one novel. What was the novel? The Picture of Dorian Gray. That must be a comic. I mean, it was bloody, well, the, the League of Gentlemen film. Yeah. It must be a comic somewhere. <laughs> we'll find, we'll find uh, the modern retelling in comic form. And then he did a couple of plays, didn't he? I mean, I'm taking your word for it. You're the literature guy. Yeah. so he Plays did... are more close to literature than comic books. Yeah. So he did Lady Windermere's fan, um, which is a I'm farce. so glad you stopped at fan. <laughs> I <laughs> mean, joke. I always used to get, I, I always used to get confused between Lady Windermere's fan and Lady Chatterley's lover. And I'd be sat in an English lecture like, did Lady Chatterley have a fan or a lover? I can't remember which way around it goes. The most middle class <laughs> question to- topic. That would kill in an English lecture at university. Oh, yeah. Was, <laughs> that's like that, like, it's funnier in Latin kind of excuse. <laughs> you if you a- were smart, you'd be, f- you'd be <laughs> laughing right now. It's what you're essentially saying. Um, so, I appreciate uh, it. Have you got a film? Uh, I've got a TV show that I've watched a couple of episodes of, um, and it's an interesting one because it's not one I'm quite raving to. uh, I've been watching Last of Us. I'm going to hold on to that until it's finished done. You know, see how the first series ends. We're two months late, so, you know, I'll keep it for then. Mm. But I did watch a couple of episodes of, and you'll appreciate this, a new show starring Jason Segel from How I Met Your Mother. You mentioned this last time. Uh, To you off air. Oh, I'm so sorry. It blurs together. I'm so sorry. This is why from now on, whenever we talk about anything that's possibly pop culture related, we just go, save it for the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Don't talk about it now. Save it for later. Um, It's the show I have spoken to you about before. It's it's called Shrinking, and it stars him um, as a shrink who basically the plot is his wife died, and he's been on a bit of a tear basically like the kind of person who would benefit from seeing a shrink but he is himself the shrink so he's not allowing people to help him yeah um but now he's getting too invested in his patients lives and it kind of skirts basically it kind of skirts between whether it's corny feel good or Mm. like there's an underlying actual problem here yeah and it's a balance where i'm almost like i don't know if i want to keep watching or not because if it's just corny feel good I've got no interest in that. Like, yeah, there's yeah. plenty of that. That's not for me. You know, I don't want that. But then when it's in the corny feel good, so it's like, you know, he's like reconnecting with his daughter yeah. who he emotionally abandoned during the grieving period. Um, and he's like, yeah, you know, she's like, yeah, you're not so bad. And he's like, oh, thanks, kid. And they're like, kind of, oh, yeah. Um, and it, you think it's all going to go well. And then the, the music's playing, you know, the acoustic indie music. And it's like, mm. it's a real feel good moment. And then the music cuts because the ex-husband of a patient who he told to leave because he was emotionally abusive sees him from across the field and comes over and punches him in the face. Deservedly. And then his current patient, who is a a veteran with PTSD, who is seeing him because he's getting into random fights with people on the street, then starts beating the shit out of the person who attacked him. Oh, it's so messy. (laughs) And the therapist, the therapist, Jason Seagull's character, is like, no, stop, don't, because he knows this guy will get in trouble again. So he's trying to stop him, but he can't because he's just seen red and, you know. So when it it went from feel-good corny to that, I was like, that's interesting. But it keeps doing the feel-good corny moments quite earnestly. So I'm like, can we get back to the uncomfortable, like, all hell's breaking loose? Did Jason Seagull write it? 
I think he's had something to do with it. Him, Bill Lawrence, who uh, okay, yeah, yeah, guy yeah, made Scrubs and Ted Lasso. So yeah. he's, I think Jay Siegel, at the very least, is a producer on it. So he's got some input, obviously. Because it was, um, oh God, who's the guy who directed all of the stuff that he was I in? I know who you mean. Uh, Judd Apatow. Geeks. Yes. Judd Apatow once sat him down on the set of Freaks and Geeks and said, you're a really weird dude. So the way, the only way you're going to break it in Hollywood is if you write your own stuff. And he wrote Forgetting Sarah Marshall. Yep. Based on that advice. And so, yeah, um, Jason Siegel seems to star in a lot of, like, star in a lot of things that he writes. Yeah. Because Judd Apatow, who, to be clear, was a bit of a dick to was the he? young people. Yeah, no, there's a lot of reports of him being quite firm with the stars of Freaks and Geeks when they were on set. He had a vision and he wanted to get that vision onto the screen. And I think he was quite young at the time. So he hadn't really learned the people skills necessary right. to get great performances out of people. But he was incredibly fucking direct with them. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, it was because that sounds like really horrid advice, doesn't yeah. it? Well, you, but could be accurate as well. I mean, Hollywood is one of those places that has those tips and tricks that you keep hearing about later in yeah. interviews. Someone's like, I was told never to look left to the camera because yeah. that's how I was ugly. So I never did that. Now I'm a millionaire. Like, and and things have worked out quite well for Jason Siegel. Yeah, of course. Exactly. Um, one interesting thing you say about that tactic is hearing from Bill Lawrence. I used to listen to the Scrubs podcast mm. and he would be on it quite a bit. He had a tactic, which they all the actors, when they later found out, was a tactic. Were like, yeah. you evil genius. But what it was, was they'd be doing a take of like a joke or a scene or whatever. And they had done the table reading beforehand. Mm. So then on the day, live shooting, you know, uh, getting in, um, they do the take. And Bill Lawrence like, cut. All right, well, let's take it again. And he goes up to one of the actors. So say like Zach Braff. He goes up to him. He's like, Zach, hey, that was good what you just did. But I remember at the table read, you did it this kind of way. And I was just wondering if you could do that again. And he was like, okay, yeah. He's like, yeah, because it was really funny when you did the table read this way. They didn't never do it did it that way. way. The table read. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> and it was only like years later, they were like, Bill, you son of a bitch. Like, <laughs> So that is a way to influence people, is mm. to make them think your ideas are their ideas. Oh, of course, yeah. To ally what somebody wants, to ally somebody's desired outcome with an action that you want them to take is a really great way of influencing people. Yeah. So it makes sense. I, I imagine that guy had read How to Win Friends and Influence People. Possibly. He'd also worked on, a, oh, what's it called? It was Michael J. Fox's TV show where he played uh, Mayor's assistant. Uh, that's going to annoy me. It was American, mm. so it wasn't quite, it wasn't big here in the UK. So, you know, understandably, we don't know it as much. Mm. Um, but yeah, the show, as I said, I'm, I'm on kind of half and half. I'm going to give it a bit more. I said, it's got some soppy bits, which I'm like, uh, but then it's got some serious bits. Like, for one thing, Harrison Ford is in it. He's just yeah. in a TV show. And he basically is playing himself, yeah. but he's also a wise, older psychologist who works with Jason Segel's character. Harrison Ford is very good at playing Harrison Ford. Yes. <laughs> and he's always believable in the situations, but he has, definitely has one speed, especially now at older age, which I understand. Yeah. Oh, don't get me wrong. Harrison Ford is a fucking legend. Mm. But he had like one scene which was like, there's little nuggets like this which make it for me worth watch, worth continuing at this yeah. stage, this show. And one of them was um, the guy, main character, Jay Siegel, who basically has been like on a bender for a year and is now trying to get back to her. Yeah. Because his wife was killed in a car crash. And Harrison Ford's character says, um, yeah, you're just starting the grieving process. 
And Jay Siegel's mm. like, what are you talking about? I've been grieving for a year. He's like, you've seen all the stuff I'm doing? He's like, no, no, you were numbing for a year. Yeah. You weren't processing anything. It's like, now you're facing it and it's going to get worse before it gets better. But this is, these are the necessary steps to grieve. Yeah. So little things like that. I'm going to keep going. Maybe I'll report back at one point. I'll be like, either I finished it or I quit it or whatever. But we'll see how it goes. Okay. But it's interesting at the very least. And that's all you can really expect from bloody content you know consuming content these days as long as it's interesting it makes me think i'll take that over great or horrendous yeah the worst thing a thing could be is boring even if it's not mm. bad boring is worse than bad you don't like average do you no okay because there's too much average there's too much content just in general so average yeah. just drops off the wayside like mm. i've watched shows that people have recommended like raved about and I'm f 10 minutes in, and I'm like, I'm literally not interested at all. This is like, bang average. And this is the moment when you should be hooking me. Yeah. TV and film, first five minutes, there are people talking about like, oh, you got to give it like half an hour to watch. It's like, they, their entire craft is to hook me into the story in yeah. five minutes. Have you seen Trolls 2? <laughs> no, I haven't, no. It's fabulous. Really? No, it's awful. It's god awful. Oh, right. I thought you meant actually good, but... No, no, no. Tro Trolls, Trolls 2 is a so bad it's good B-movie. Um, it was originally about goblins. It's set in a town called Nilbog, Goblin right. Backwards. Right. They got halfway through the production cycle and just decided that they would make it a sequel to the Trolls film, despite the fact it is not <laughs> a sequel to the Trolls film. Excellent. And this shit show goes on for about two and a half hours. It's a long film. Um, it's the same. It's the same as like Plan Nine from Out of Space, which is right. an Edward film. Yeah, yeah. Famous, famous. So bad it's so good. So bad is and Glenn and Glenda. Yep. I like B movies. The room. <laughs> I don't know if you've have noticed. you seen the room? Have I seen the room? <laughs> it's, it's awesome. Isn't it? It's one of the best. I had a, I had a friendship group where whenever you went into their house. Oh hi, Mark. You, yeah, <laughs> but it was because every time a new person came round, one of them would just subtly put the room on and leave it playing, and so this new person would be like. What are we watching? And they're like, I don't know, just a film. Just a film I'll and put then, on. <laughs> and the room would just be playing in the corner. Cheep, 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 cheep. <laughs> it was so funny to watch people. If anyone's not seen The Room, watch The Room. It's the Citizen Kane of bad films, literally. It is, isn't it? It's so bad it's good. Mm. And the guy who made it is never going to make anything, anywhere even close. He's attempted. Yeah. Nothing's going to come close to that magic of... Gaining a lot of money over a short time, being yeah. much older than he says he is, yeah. visibly having plastic surgery, yeah. not admitting which country he's from, yeah. and then making a film that was the worst film in history, considered to be. Somebody, somebody did a biopic about him recently, didn't they? Yeah, uh, it was the Franco brothers, James and Dave yes, Franco. Yes, there we yeah. go. And James Franco is great as, as um, the guy, I can't remember his name. Um Dodgy oh. stuff, yeah. Dodgy stuff in the background with James Franco. So yeah, yeah before you're a great goes human being, raving recommending, but he was good in the role. Like that's undeniable. I mean, I don't think it was in the background. I think it was in his fucking DMs. Yep, probably, <laughs> probably. Yeah. But the less said about it on here, the better. Yeah, absolutely. So what are we talking about this week, Ryan? Well, we, I mean, technically, we're doing an, a new series, a new title, but it's kind of also going to be a bit of a topic episode. It's a special interest topic for it's you, isn't it? It's definitely a special interest for me. I mean, we did Thor with the mythology for yourself yes. last time. And this one, well, it kind of has to be about a specific title because it's a comic book series about pro wrestling, professional it's wrestling. Ryan. It's the title of the, the series, which I really like. It's called Do a Powerbomb. <laughs> it makes me so happy. I think it's a great, it's, it reminds me of the Do a Barrel Roll from yeah. wherever that game was. 
people are going to write in like, the game is called, I don't know, whatever. Fox, something Fox, Star Fox, maybe one of those. Yeah. But um, so it's rare. There's rarely going to be a comic about pro wrestling. So this is the one time I get to talk about my, I almost say guilty pleasure only because it's the the wider view, the wider perception of yeah, pro wrestling absolutely. makes it feel like guilty pleasure. But mm. in myself, I think it's a great thing. Like, it's just so much fun. In preparation for this, I watched some old pro wrestling specials. Wow, really? Yeah, absolutely. And I saw a sign. That, so this was from the 90s before they made people sanitize the signs. Right. Before they kind of, you know, vetted yeah. the signs that the, came the in. The signs that the audience, the people in the cr- uh, crowd or the audience hold at yeah. the event. So this is, this would have been just after it transitioned from being WWF to WWE. Yep. Get the F out. Absolutely. <laughs> And there was a sign at the back that said, look, mum, I'm white trash. And it made me so happy. There was also Vince McMahon was in, in one of the scenes. Mm. And he walked through the audience past the sign that said Vince McMahon is juicing. And oh, I was yeah. like, yeah, that's so funny. Whereas these days, uh, so these days in the promotion I watch, there was mm. a sign back and forth battle. So the 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 live wrestling they tour like city to yeah, city yeah, and yeah. hold a, a do a weekly episode normally 52 weeks a year um and there was a sign battle of, based on video games so it started when someone bought a sign that said final fantasy 7 is the best in the series yeah and then someone else was like persona 5 is the best final fantasy <laughs> game which is not even in the series so it's even like worse <laughs> like the best final fantasy game is not a final <laughs> fantasy game and it just went back and forth like that people like gamecube is the best console like stuff like that i've heard persona 5 is actually pretty good it's it's awesome it's a jrpg it's pretty yeah. great uh, I'm going to reference it later in here. You'll see what I mean. Personally, I think Dragon Quest Eight is the best JRPG. But not, not played it myself, but... Uh, it's cel-shaded and beautiful. Wow, fair enough. Um, the guy who did the art is the same guy who drew the original Dragon Ball comic. Oh, fair. Well, that's one we've got to do at some point down the line, because that's going to be interesting. And interestingly, this title described as uh, by the website as uh, The Wrestler Meets Dragon Ball. What do you think about that as a comparison? Yes agreed <laughs> yeah I suppose, podcast ended <laughs> well can we just jump straight into spoilerville uh, should we because it like if someone's listening to this right now they think this comic sounds interesting but i want to hear a little more to tip me over into reading but you know without the spoilers so makes can we it do really it difficult to talk about something well because you, you you've can, asked me if if i if i see the dragon ball connection all right and i you, do for a really clear reason can you make can you put a pin in it okay yeah i can but a, can. Men, a mental pin or do you want me to make a note of it and we'll like cut it out yeah absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. all right uh, hang on okay secret note made for later fun yeah i mean note taking and general administration the mum dies i think you'll find it's very fun <laughs> the mum dies at the beginning so we're good on that <laughs> i'm so sorry i'm feeling really disruptive I mean, you're, uh, is it the ADHD? Is that the, uh, is it kicking in? No. No, it's no. Just, just you right, normal run <laughs> no, in the mill. I'm just in a bad mood. Right, so panic averted and uh, nothing <laughs> to worry about. Technical issue, let's, let's call it. Oh, we'll just cut all this out. We'll just pretend it never happened. Yeah, then people are going to be like, what are they talking about? Don't worry about it. It's anyway, fine. so I, up top, loved this comic. I thought it was Did amazing. You? But I wonder why. I also, I mean, we briefly spoke about it on the Messenger, and yeah. I was not surprised, but slightly, slightly like, oh, he, uh, he wasn't as fond of it as I was. That was while you were kind of mid-reading it, and then you, I think, you were a little more faithful towards the end. I enjoyed it. So there were two big revelations in the first two issues, and I called both of them in the air. 
Right, fair enough. Well, if we go kind of along in a all kind of linear, 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 linear. So yeah, in the first issue, we see two wrestlers, two pro wrestlers wrestling. I'll start just a little bit of the admin on the um, the credits. The creator, uh, a yeah. guy called Daniel Warren Johnson, who is the writer and artist. Um, does an amazing job on the art. I think just generally, yeah, top, I think the art is just is really cool looking. It's like um, comic, like a what's like the kind of kind of grittier looking comic, mm. but also got a playfulness as well. Because you hugged it to like Garth, some of Garth Ennis's series, yeah, like The Punisher and uh, Preacher. Yeah, so it had that grubby look like The Preacher. Do you know what? It there were moments where it really reminded me of Preacher. And then there was a moment, you know, there's that incredible panel in Why the Last Man, mm. where you cut to the Sydney Opera House, which has been turned into a shooting gallery. And it's this big opulent space that's been made to look really grubby. And there was a grubbiness to a lot of the rooms and the cityscapes in this. Whatever he'd done to the art, he'd made them look kind of, he'd made them look and feel dirty in some mm. way. And I found that really enjoyable because it lent a slightly darker edge to what could have been a really camp story yeah and i think as well that i agree with what everything you say i think there's also an element of i said upbeat playfulness alongside the grubbiness yeah when like like down the line there's bloody um orangutan pro wrestlers like things like that oh they... so we're allowed to spoil the orangutans <laughs> i didn't know there'd be orangutans in this i mean that's like a clue for that's like a little yeah, and it's yeah no right. We're talking about a comic book about wrestling, right? Yeah, we're not allowed to spoil anything that happens later. The fact there are two orangutans is a fairly good indication that shit gets weird. I mean, all right, we'll say up top, <laughs> shit gets weird, much weirder than I thought it would. It got really sure. weird, didn't it? I mean, the blurb alone it gives you a kind of good idea of what to expect, and this is a quite a. a quite a condensed story for is what you see. Wikipedia? Uh, no, it's from the Image website because it's an Image comic and Wikipedia. I didn't even bother searching because Image just on there already. They just do it. Yeah, Wikipedia, They, they it's just not, I mean, it only just released this year. It's I only seven m- issues. I imagine the synopsis from Wikipedia would probably be the one from Image Comics. Exactly, yeah. So we have here, uh, Lona Steelrose wants to be a pro wrestler, but she's living under the shadow of her mother, the best to ever do it. Everything changes when a wrestling-obsessed necromancer asks her to join the grandest pro-wrestling tournament of all time, which is also the most dangerous. It's the wrestler meets Dragon Ball Z in a tale where the competitor gets more than they ever bargained for. And it's uh, the creative Murder Falcon and Wonder Woman Dead Earth. Um, Murder Falcon, apparently, the the writer-artist described as his uh, love of heavy metal in a comic and now doing his love of pro-wrestling in a comic. Mm. So, starting off from the first issue, this, how did you feel in terms of not knowing as much as what would be a pro wrestling fan's level of um, knowledge in this? Was there any parts, was it confusing at all, or did you just get it immediately? Was it all just contextual and easy to understand? How yeah, it made it? sense. I mean, I had, so obviously from having a few wrestling fans in my life, I knew about certain things that had happened in pro wrestling that this was kind of calling attention to like the Montreal Screwjob, um, you know, the idea of people dying in the ring and that kind of stuff. Was there any, mon- was there screw jobs in this, would you say? 
people getting well, cheated the, out. Wasn't the Montreal Screwjob where someone died in the wreck? No. So the Montreal Screwjob where someone got cheated out of the of the the winning the title. Who was the guy who died in the ring? There's been a couple. So I was going to stay. Um, the one who died in the ring was close to in the ring. Um, there's one major North American one. I say one. There's there's the most well-known North American one was a guy called Owen Hart. Because his son now is a big deal in AEW, isn't he? No, that's... I mean, there's a few like that. Uh, <laughs> so Owen Hart, I don't know about sons or anything. His brother was uh, Bret Hart, who's considered one of the greatest of all time. Okay, yeah, um, yeah. Owen Hart was really good as well. Um, he tragically passed in. He basically he was coming down into the ring on like a um, yeah, yeah, yeah on a what do you call it like a uh, zipline zipline yeah. And unfortunately, the zipline just snapped off mid midway, and he just fell from a great height and and basically died on impact. But WWE didn't stop the event did they they nope. kept that shit running they kept the show going after someone died live on air which is brutal pretty horrible yes but no i found i found it relatively easy to follow there was one other death which is very interesting it's a guy who is considered one of the pillars of japanese wrestling yeah, yeah, yeah. um I, i'm almost certain it's misawa i think that's the, the one's name of the four um he so he would take in the Japanese pro wrestling, which this is this comic is heavily yeah, yeah, inspired yeah. by, is a lot just harder hitting and a strong lot, style. They call it yeah, strong styles yeah. where they beat the piss out of each other, <laughs> all still predetermined, which is the preferred term that pro wrestling fans use, but still all predetermined, all scripted, and it's all you know agreed upon. But the Japanese style, especially the strong style, is they're like, I'm going to hit you as hard as I physically can, and you're going to do the same back to me, mm. and we're going to do this match. But it also involved taking a lot of what they call dangerous bumps. Now, a bump yeah. is any kind of hitting the mat or being yeah. thrown or any any kind of falling over, anything like that. A dangerous bump, what they were doing a lot is they were doing what's called neck bumps, yeah. which is basically falling on kind of like the lower part of your neck, so where the neck meets your back. And it looks bad when you were taking it, if you fall in what's called like a German suplex. So yeah. that's, you hit the ground at that point. It looks like you're falling on your neck. But what you're actually doing, what the rest is actually doing, is rolling through it. They're tucking their neck and rolling back, aren't Exactly. They? So yeah. it looks like they impact the mat at their neck, but they hit and roll, and they never, the neck never takes like the bot, the majority of the bump. Yeah. Some in Japanese wrestling, they were pretty much taking it on the neck. Yeah. They were just falling on their necks. They also have a style of uh, neck strengthening where... You've think, told me about this. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> what they do is, or what I've seen is basically they'll get into a crab position. So if mm. anyone knows, you know, you're on your hands and feet with your stomach facing up in the air. Yeah. So you're kind of arched over like a in the crab position. And then what they would do is then they would, instead of their hands, it would be their head as the point that touches yeah. the floor. And with their arms, they would then get a barbell with weights on it and do presses with the barbell while holding themselves up by their neck. Yeah. So they would do these to um, build up strength in the neck so that if something happens, the neck muscle literally holds them together. I've seen one instance of a wrestler who, a Japanese wrestler, who landed in a way where basically his head hit the ring where his body didn't. Ooh. And I'm almost, he's absolutely fine now, miraculously. And he accredits like the neck muscles yeah. to saving his life. His massive traps. Yeah. And <laughs> I, I think I showed you the guy. His traps yeah. were huge. Yeah. And instantly, that guy, Kota Ibushi, is uh, credited by the writer as having a match with another wrestler called Tomohiro Ishii, mm. and it was their match that made him fall in love with pro wrestling. 
their match in a G1 oh, climax. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, because it it was interesting to me that it was so reliant on Japanese wrestling because mm. I'm familiar with Japanese wrestling because I talk to you about wrestling. You're a wrestling fan. We talk about it. Yeah. Um, and I've watched a couple of Japanese matches and I, I kind of know the differences now. But you'd think if you were making a comic book about wrestling for a non-wrestling audience, you would just set it as firmly in WWE as you could so mm. that it was as familiar to many as many people as possible. Um, so I think it's really interesting that he said it in the Japanese scene. The Japanese and Mexican. So definitely some, some lucha, yeah, in, heavy some, lucha inspirations as well. For one of the characters. Yeah, and just a lot of the moves and stuff and like the mm. type of arenas, like that's very Japanese and um and Mexican because they're just bigger sports, considered sports over there. Mm. Sports, not because it's actual competition, but just because of the athleticism required yeah. by people to do it. Um, Before I forget as well, the, the Japanese wrestler who died, so this uh. is a big anecdote. So the guy, pretty sure it was Masawa. And what happened was he was taking these neck bumps like, Mm. night after night after night and yeah. just all the time and a lot of people are like you guys need to bloody take it easy on those because someone's gonna get seriously hurt at some point mm. it got to the point where he was taking what's called a back suplex so someone yeah. literally lifts him up and just drops him on his back and that's the problem is things that were meant to just be back bumps they were turning into neck bumps yeah. to just make it look more dangerous so they could you know get more people and get more money he took a back bump turned into a neck bump so fell just slightly harder he landed in a way where basically he severed his spine and neck on the inside. Yeah. So they described it as what was basically an internal decapitation, decapitation. because they just kept taking this brute force landing over and over again. And this last one was like the basically a straw that broke the camel's back yeah. and it just like ended his life right Which there. Which is so sad and so tragic and very mm. brutal, but it also sounds like a really easy way to go. I mean, hopefully, hopefully it was painless. You know, we hope. You'd, you'd expect it would be, wouldn't you? But that's yeah. so tragic. Yeah, yeah. And that's and uh, there was a, a realisation afterwards of like, right, we can't keep doing this. So there's still an element of people, like wrestlers will be like, if you do it for few and far in between and you take a lot of kind of self-care in between these points, then you can whip them out every once in a while and, you know, Take a big neck bump for the drama. Yeah. Or if you're a Japanese wrestler, you just build those traps up so much yeah. that they just encase your neck and you just find them out what. But I do have some questions sure. about the first issue. Um, something that I found quite interesting was that we were introduced to a male-female match, mm. which in my experience of pro wrestling isn't a thing that happens very often. I don't know if that's more of a feature in Japan or if it's just something that they did here. So it varies from country to country and also promotion to promotion. Yeah. So generally North American. So if we think of the, the biggest countries and to consider are North America. So that includes like America, yeah. Canada, uh, Mexico. I yeah. know it's technically north of the continent, but it's its own thing. It's in South so, America. Isn't yeah. North American, Mexican and Japanese. Yeah. Mexican. Uh, I don't know if it's changed over time or if they were different before, but currently today, don't give a shit who you are, what you are. Everyone's in it. Everyone yeah. can do whatever. They're very laxed on the rules. They okay. really don't give a shit about like title lineages or anything like that. Okay. They're very kind of like, he won the title. Oh, no, he's won the title. Oh, he's won. Like, it doesn't yeah. matter. And same with kind of intergender wrestling. They're just like, they're one of the few that have intergender tag team champions. And that's just like free for all. Everyone fucking, you know, like men and women, yeah. they're all wrestling each other. Um, it's an interesting thing. Um, 
Japan is different. J- their biggest promotion called New Japan, who is inspiring yeah. this comic, they don't. They have separate promote promotions entirely. So, so they do not make genders. They don't, but they've started to only in the last year, and that's because of a whole thing of signing a very well-known North American women's wrestler uh, who was former WWE, who was known right. as Sasha Banks. She's just been picked up by New Japan uh, under her new name, Mercedes Monet. And the reason they picked her up was because she was on The Mandalorian. Yeah. So she's extremely well-known. And they were just, and she's a big fan of Japanese wrestling, men's and women's. And New Japan were like, we're the biggest company. We will give you the most money. We will make a title for you so you can come and wrestle for us. Yeah. So they've, she's broken new ground by being so famous and so influential. So, so she's, money. Yeah, money exactly. Money for them. Money. That's why she called money. Hey. Yeah. Um, but she's also a big fan of a, the, the sister promotion to New Japan, which is called Stardom. And yeah. Stardom are considered one of the greatest wrestling promotions of all time, just of how much great wrestling they're putting on nowadays. Yeah. So they're all women. And they are considered, even though they're separate from the men, they're considered... The matches they put on are as intense, as gripping, as athletically demanding, yeah, and just generally as great as the men's. So even though they're separate promotions, they're considered equal. Yeah. Um. Then North American, it's quite different. Oh, and there's there's smaller promotions in Japan. The one that comes to mind is one called DDT, mm. and they will there's no rules. Like they literally do anything. Where did you get on with it? Well, so like there's a guy who is going to reference here. Um, one that could one of the greatest North American wrestlers, but he mainly actually uh, performed in japan in new japan a guy called kenny omega yeah, yeah who's yeah. going to be referenced some a lot in this he started out in japan in ddt as like a serious contracted wrestler mm. him and koto Ibushi together they were, they were called the golden lovers um they did things like kenny omega wrestled a 12 year old girl i think literally did a whole wrestling match with a 12 year old girl <laughs> and koto Ibushi, i think it's either koto or kenny did a match with a um blow-up doll and, oh, yeah. that's a bit weird. So the point is, DDT was like, literally do whatever you want if you think it's entertaining. Like, yeah. it's DDT, I would describe as the closest, like, art form, like, just an expressive art form. Yeah. Do whatever you want, as long as you think it will entertain people in this pro wrestling, you know, confines. And they were just doing stuff like that. So also, so Intergender didn't even register at all. It, yeah. No, because they were doing such crazy stuff like that. But then you've got North American wrestling, yeah. which... Treat a bit differently because of the modern sensibilities. We've got, you know, different views on gender and how it's viewed. Um, The main thing is there's two sides to it. The one side is people are hesitant to do matches where you basically... So in any kind of wrestling match, unless it's a squash, which is rare... It's there's give and take. Mm. So someone will have some offense and then the other person will have some yeah, offense. Yeah, yeah. And that's just the case most of the time, unless literally someone comes in and just destroys someone and leaves, which happens sometimes, but not commonly. The fear is that if you have a man and a woman in an intergender match, then there's going to be periods of time where the man is essentially offense on a woman. So that involves whether performing wrestling moves or just General beating violence. Them. Exactly. Um, and just if those bits will be clipped and used wrongly or viewed by, you know, bad people for wrong mm. reasons, that kind of stuff. The other side of the argument is you've got women's wrestlers who are like, we don't want to be kept aside if we think we can go because it's not competition. It's not actual mm. sport. We can, it's all a work. The work, the term is, you know, it being a work, it's all fixed yeah. and everything. So why can't we do it where we just perform to the same level yeah um and there are great intergender 
uh, matches out there. Mm. Uh, one I'm particularly fan of was on took place on the Indies, yeah. and it's um, a guy called Swerve Strickland who faced against. Um, her name is now. She used to be called Ember Moon. She's now called Athena. Yeah. Um. And they had an intergender. In yeah. Yeah. And they had an in, in, intergender match, which was very hard hitting. They yeah. they did not hold back with each other, and she lost in the end. The guy played the bad guy, the heel, and it was done tastefully. So where you know she was treated like a genuine competitor, and yeah, there is still that 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 feeling of what's going to happen with this footage afterwards and all yeah, that. Yeah, I can I can understand. I hadn't really considered that, but yeah. I can understand that. There's both sides and there's also an element of um the fear that women might be pushed uh pushed to do intergender matches if they yeah. if they don't want to or they don't you know feel up to it. Um and that's it's that's a th an element as well which is more of a, a potential fear rather I think than a than an experienced one if that makes sense. Mm. But, you know, there's sides both and all, and I, there's pros and cons both sides. So it's it's an unusual thing they're doing in this comic, for sure. Um, and it was in interesting to open the first page and see that and going, oh, my God, this is a, they're doing this now. So immediately as a wrestling fan, you're like, well, this is different. So I assume you've got the same kind of inclination that it's not usual to see uh, in a gender match like this. Yeah, it felt unusual. There were some nice moments in that first issue. I mean, so obviously the the moment where um lona's mum dies yes and you kind of see the male wrestler drop her on her head and you hear him go oops and kind of he breaks character as the heel for just a moment i thought that was quite a charming nod to the way that wrestling actually happens where when you see a mistake like that kind of you know the you you realize that facade of character gets dropped yep uh, wrestlers are it's an extremely faith based in terms of having faith in each other yeah they're throwing each other about aren't they extremely trust based uh performance and to, to their lives literally depend on it yeah so yeah any kind of issue ever at all they will always try and help each other out or the safety of your fellow wrestler is always the most important aspect yeah so that very much rung true when as soon as something happens they were you know worried and unfortunately it's not a big plot point in terms of the mistake itself like so like sometimes things like this is like you find out later oh this villain was behind it or you know there's some kind of reveal later like you thought it was a mistake but it was actually a plan by the antagonist for the story to work oh it yeah. needs to be a sincere mistake doesn't it and i think that also makes it more harrowing but also that it's and it's very true of pro wrestling as a as a performance is incredibly dangerous even doing the most simple things but i think something that i so so in those first few issues um i really felt that they were setting up a very well-worn story and so i clocked from maybe the first couple of panels that lona's mom was gonna die mm. and then i clocked very very quickly that crimson sun is that his name uh cobra sun cobra sun was her dad right um the moment that he disappeared in the dressing room and her mom was like Oh, daddy has to go to work late. I was like, he's yeah, he's that other guy in the mask, isn't he? So what was interesting for me was I feel like, and I can't say this for sure, I feel like if it was a different kind of story that I would have had the same reaction. Yeah. But because, and this is just purely me theorizing, I'm not, I hope this doesn't come off me, be like, oh, I would have got it as well. But, you know, yeah. 
but I, I feel like because I was reading it and I was looking at all the references and the background and like the the characters and like oh they're doing this and they're doing that and you know this is happening I I feel like I missed out on the normal story tropes because I was looking at the references not was it not seeing the forest for the trees or whatever yeah and and those first couple of issues they are setting up in a roundabout way quite a standard hero's journey narrative yes Lona. And that's very pro wrestling is yeah, trying absolutely. to trying to tell the hero story in a limited medium of promos and wrestling matches. Yeah, I mean Lona has a call to adventure mm. and you know there's um some kind of uh, challenge for her to overcome and there's external factors. You know, it's it's a fairly at the start it's a fairly standard hero's journey, mm. but of course everything becomes quite um, it, it turns into a fantasy story, doesn't it? Yeah, and I love that because wrestling in itself is a a fantasy of sorts. Yeah. It's but the fantasy is if you Irish whip someone towards the ropes, they'll run to it, turn around, and re- yeah. rebound off and come back at you. And that's that fantasy. That is the point at which you suspend disbelief. And what's really fun here is that you know by making it a fantasy story one of the things that they do is take away the need to suspend disbelief for the actual wrestling because there's a big plot point that actually in this fantasy world, the wrestling isn't fake. Yep. <laughs> and I was waiting for the point to see if it if in this comic wrestling was going to be a work or not. Yeah. And, as, and even after the accident, I still wasn't sure because mm. I didn't know if the accident was like, if you were if you were doing like Olympic wrestling and someone died, they would have had a similar reaction. Yeah, you, you, so I was even in UFC, you're not trying to kill the guy. Exactly. You? So it wasn't even at that point that I knew for sure or not. It mm. was only once uh, Lona is talking to the necromancer. She yes. goes, "So who wins?" And that me as soon as I read that, I was like, "Ah, it's a work here, yeah. right? That makes sense." And then that kind of I was interested to see how that was going to compare because you could have gone either way. But then there was obviously added story elements with her dad being the guy who accidentally killed his mum and, mm. you know, all that. Um, the first issue I thought had great energy for the champion coming out and, to, like, being cheered by the crowd. Yeah. As someone, I've, someone, someone who's seen this many times in actual live footage or live action, you know, wrestling, to see it captured in a comic and how well they did it. But I don't know if that's just me having the relevant experience and then they bring it out of me so how did you feel when the when iona's iona lone iona the mum lona iona yeah i can't tell because of the font yeah when the mum comes out and she's the champion she's holding the belt and she's coming out and everyone's cheering did you get a kind of sense of that at all no i was nonplussed okay that's but again at that point i was prepared to not enjoy it <laughs> you were because, going you were going in with a i'll get through this yeah no i was seeing i was seeing these story beats and i was kind of like seeing her interact with her daughter and the dad bugger off backstage and i'm like right so they're both in that ring one of them's gonna die reckon it's the mum right you know it was yeah, kind yeah. of like i was kind of like oh i've you know you know you know when a story when you're able to predict a story it kind of mm. spoils it for you yeah. i spoiled it for myself by predicting it and so at that point, I was still just kind of going through the motions with it. It wasn't until the, uh, Lona met the necromancer mm. that I was like, oh, this is cool. This yeah. is interesting. And I suppose spoiling just what is essentially set up for yourself is not as bad. And like, it's a thing we've talked about before with um, 
originally coming back to Ice Cream Man. It's yeah, I was about to say. Giving you the tropes quite quickly. Yeah. And then when it gets to the weird stuff, it's so that we could do the tropes quickly to get to the weird yeah, stuff. Yeah, and, and, and they were, they were, the whole thing bounced along mm. at a really, really good pace. And just fun, like I was having fun. I was having fun while reading it. Yeah, but that's because I'm like, oh, they're doing a move. Ah, oh, they're doing that. Like, ah. And and it, it is quite liberal with the wrestling stuff. Yes, I saw. You know, I think if I knew more about the nuances of the different types of suplex, for instance. Yeah, I was getting a lot of that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I was seeing it, but of course, I wasn't comprehending it. Hmm. I think what is nice to know is that actually not having a profound understanding of wrestling didn't affect it for me right so i know a bit so when um uh what was his name again cobra son cobra son yep uh was talking to blood his brother-in-law yeah about the re his reason their reasoning for never having told loner about his true identity and he said oh well i was a heel i understand that and mm. that's and that you know i was able to decode that and make a lot of sense out of it quite quickly whereas i feel like if you were coming into this knowing absolutely nothing about wrestling you'd be like what does that mean yes and i i see what you mean by that and i would i suppose i would hope that someone who literally just picked up this comic out of interest had no wrestling information whatsoever that they would contextually understand he or means bad guy in that moment you and, think? and and there is some exposition that follows it which kind of gives you the context and so I feel as though you could go into this with no wrestling knowledge at all, like absolute baseline, never seen a pro wrestling match. Yeah. And it would teach you everything that it needed to for you to make sense of what was going on. Mm. Um, and that, that was the only moment that I was like, oh, a piece of pro wrestling knowledge that I have has come in handy here. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is we talk about it being like a, starting off like a generic story. What's interesting for me as the wrestling fan is I know that the what they did, so the match started with them doing what's called promos before the match. Yeah. Now, that's quite unusual. Most matches don't start with promos. Most yeah. promos are done way beforehand or shown in like a video package before the match. Well, the promos are promotion to get you to actually pay for the pay-per-view, aren't they? Exactly. And promos, or the, the promos short to, they can range from the WWE version, which is like full-on soap opera, yeah. like just ridiculous settings and, you know, everything other than wrestling is happening. Um, the promotion I follow, AEW, is kind of between that mm. and then the other end. And then the other end is like Japanese, which is press conferences and people just like standing in front of a like yeah. press room being like, put my their opponent and how they're going to be. The there. same way it happens in boxing and UFC. Yes. And it's varying levels of storytelling types. Like obviously yeah. WWE version are very liberal and they are described as storytelling with a backdrop of wrestling. And then AEW is described, the other North American promotion, is described as wrestling with a with story backdrops. Yeah. So like depending on the different focuses on what is more important. WWE watches like a soap opera, doesn't it? Exactly. And most pro wrestling is soap opera to an extent. Like there's yeah. still like, you know, those kind of basic storytelling, basic um tensions and goals and heroes' journeys and things like that. But it's how you tell it and how much you do it in the prom promos versus how much you do it in the wrestling match itself. Yeah. But what's interesting is the types of promos they gave, I would say are the most bare bones, generic baby face heel promos. So the mother, her baby face promo 
is literally like, I fight for you, the fans. Yeah, 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 yeah. And Cobra Sun is literally like, I hate each and any one of you. And if you're a wrestling yeah. fan, you know that each and any one of you is a criticism of WWE. Because for a long time, any of their people turn heel, they just immediately change their entire personality and they go, you cheered for me, but I hate each and every one of you fans. Right, like that kind okay. of trope. So they were very, like, you could take those scripts and give them to any babyface heel wrestling match. And they yeah. would just, they would make that work. The good stuff is when they become character-driven and character-personalized promos. Yeah. And it's about, like, the story they've been building. And it's not just generic, I hate you because I'm the champion and you're the challenger. Like, it becomes, like, infusing the characters with the story and, you know, all that stuff. So do you feel it was a good storytelling idea for him to use a really, really, really basic format just to kind of introduce, basically just so the formality of there was a promo, there was a match? Yeah, of course. It's You're crossing, for the people who know about the stuff, you're just kind of signposting like, like the same thing with you be saying about the generic storytelling tropes. So it's the same thing as a wrestling fan. You go, mm. all right, babyface, heel, bam, got it, good. For, the, for yourself, you wouldn't notice that being the trope but you would be like, these wrestlers are talking to each other before match, but yeah. you're already clocking onto the the mother's probably going to die and the bad guy's the dad. and you know, you're, So it's different forms of using tropes to quickly get through story, but in two different dimensions. One, the traditional storytelling, and the other, pro wrestling. Yeah. So that's a kind of interesting that they're doing both versions of At the trope, same time. Yeah, of trope storytelling. So we, we've talked about the comparison to Preacher a lot. Mm. And I think... Um, oh, the Irish fellow in Preacher, the heroin addict. Uh, Cassidy. Cassidy. Yes, the vampire. Yeah, he. The necromancer really reminded me of Cassidy. Yeah, both definitely. in the visual language that was used and just in his attitude. He's kind of this very, very much like a being who's kind of laissez-faire because they don't have no worries or fears. Yeah, absolutely. He's yeah. sort of. You know, he he crapped out of world domination and he's just spent a few hundred years watching telly mm. and he's absorbed a bunch of pro wrestling and he's decided this is what I'm doing. And Cassidy's kind of the same, isn't he? He bumbled through the 60s and he bumbled through the 70s and then he met the main character of Preacher in like the 90s. Yeah. And he just kind of bumbles about knowing that there's very it's little like, consequence for him. Oh, there's something interesting going on here. So I'll, uh, I'll follow these guys. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, that's and necromancy. Yeah. Yeah, and so there was I, I I drew I drew that comparison really early on, and I don't know if it informed my the decisions I was making about the character and the way I was thinking about the mm. character too much. I quite liked him. Yeah, and he's he's kind of slightly antagonistic, but not quite an antagonist, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, yeah, he's not an antagonist, but because of the revelations we have about his past, mm. you know, he's a bit of a dick no a bad right? dude like, yeah he he started a big old war on the on the planet he's from and wasn't even defeated but came to a draw and then was exiled so it's yeah. like they couldn't kill me but they exiled me it's like mm. you're probably a pretty bad dude if they tried killing you first and yeah. that failed <laughs> so understandable um there's a lot of the wrestling language that is still it's kind of peppered through isn't it's it? peppered through one i noticed and i don't know if you'd recognize or not but when uh uh loner is called green by blood 
and green is basically new wrestlers who aren't very good yet or they're still learning and they're still rough around the edges right yeah i mean i recognized it as a piece of language and i knew what it meant so again contextually without knowing it you understood what it meant but that's that's an expression that will be used in all sorts of professions and areas they're a bit green yeah i suppose i i hear a lot in wrestling so i suppose i've i've attributed that because that's why i hear it most but yeah now that you've phrased it that way i now realize it's not not solely wrestling dedicated yeah but that's fine um but going back to the art like you said um the we talk about the extra lines of like detail in some bits yeah what i know especially was there's thing in wrestling called chops and there's one point where one wrestler is chopping another. So that is literally slapping the palm, their chest. Yeah. yeah, palm slap to the chest. Makes a big noise in, in arenas. Yeah. So that's always good for that. Some some people, they'll literally like shush the audience and everyone just goes silent. And you hear like a, like a <laughs> whack on the, on the, on the yeah. chest. Um, that is one of those things where they just hit each other as hard as possible because it's no injury. Yeah. Still a lot of pain. But no, but no injury. physical injuries. But what you also get is blood vessels will pop on the chest as well, so yeah. it just looks red as like bloody beef. Yeah. But um, but in that shot, there was all the ripples, the details of the ripples of the mid slap, and I thought yeah. that was great. And you cut the impact of the moves, even when they're at the point where it's still fake, where it's still predetermined, they still got across like the impact of like hitting the floor and hitting each other and stuff. And unfortunately, neck hitting the floor as well. Yeah, I mean, it's something that you have to pay attention to when you're making a comic about a sport is the visual language of it and how you um, portray motion. Because I feel like if they don't portray motion really, really well in something like wrestling, where they're trying to show the intricacies of the way that two bodies are moving around each other, it would end up looking really flat on the page, wouldn't it? Yeah. And yeah, again, it reminded me of the art style. I get a preacher is what I said to you, isn't it? It reminded me of the art style in preacher. Hmm. Um, and I don't know if that is necessarily true and if there's necessarily that much of a similarity there. Well, I'd say with this, the difference has to be that there's more movement, more motion. Mm. And I think I think the art does a great job. Personally, I thought they did a great job of filling in the blanks, but I'm also very aware that I'm filling in the blanks yeah so it's hard to say i think you would have to see the actual things they're trying to represent yeah and then you would have to kind of be a judge of did they accurately portray it for you or not i would say that it never looked flat on the page that's good never looked flat on the page like it always looked as though there was motion and i could always kind of see how the human anatomy would do that yeah you know what i mean yeah of course and sometimes i thought it was interesting sometimes they would fill the space with color so yeah. it'd be kind of like, bam, kind of explosive looking. And then other times, or selectively, there'd be no extra color, but there'd be one of the rest would be like mid-air and a moonsault. And yeah. you see the space and the, how high they've gone and like the space between them and the floor. And I think that's selectively using that filling in the space or leaving the space yeah. was quite good. Um, and there was a nice distinction sometimes between what was happening in the ring and then what was happening away from what the camera would view. Yes, exactly. Right? And it's kind of, you know, when you, it's like when you watch a behind the scenes documentary about a band that you like and you see their stage set up and it's this like beautiful, really elaborate stage set up that's there to provide a show for people. And then you see the footage of them in the green room and it's kind of grubby. Yeah. And there's a bowl of kind of half browning fruit. All brown M&Ms. Yeah, 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 absolutely. (laughs) 
and you kind of see that and it, i felt like i was getting that experience of like i'm seeing the forward facing elements of wrestling and i'm also kind of seeing what these people are experiencing out of the room. and that was quite nice mm. but it and and that wasn't like a feature of the comic it was just a way in which it i was able to suspend my disbelief yeah that i was seeing this very colorful neon camp stuff happening on the ring and then away from the ring it was all a bit brown and sepia toned and grubby and i suppose that like that i think adds dimension to the characters yeah because you experience their experience of of the wrestling business by yeah. having these high octane shows where in front of crowds and you're doing insane stuff and then it's like back in the locker room you're counting the money you've just been paid and your stuff's in the duffel bag like yeah and highs and lows of and the business cobra sun and his props his big bat, his baseball bat in his chair yeah. and well speaking of that segue nicely yeah um cobra sun is from canada uh which is great because canada is one of those countries kind of like england where they're not a wrestling hub in themselves yeah but we've had some of the greatest of all time come from here so um canada specifically has had brett and owen hart yeah um who were uh, brett hitman hart one of the best of all time also got Chris Jericho, who some people might know uh, from the Attitude Era, the you know the Rock Stone Cold yeah. kind of era. Uh, he's referred to as the David Bowie of uh, the <laughs> wrestling world because he reinvents himself. He's got like different personas. Yeah. Um. He's been known as uh the Ayatollah of rock and roller. He's yeah. been Y two J. Um. <laughs> he's been uh the the list. He hold of the list. So he right, okay. he would like people would piss him off. It's like you know what. And the crowd like knows what's coming, and he like takes out his list and like pen. He's like, "You just made the list." And he just writes their name on. <laughs> and people are like, "I don't know what that means. No, yeah. Nothing's happened to anyone who's been born on the list." But, but they're on the list. But all right. Um, and it's referencing a lot in this comic, the famous and considered greatest of all time, Kenny Omega. Yeah, he's from Manitoba, Canada, specifically where Jericho's from as well. Right. So it's interesting they put Cobra Sun as Canadian as well. That's like a fun thing in american wrestling where they're like oh he's canadian because there's a bunch of great canadian wrestlers it kind of put me in mind of the rock a little bit and you're gonna have to go you're gonna have to follow me along for this for a minute sure sure but it's like obviously north american wrestling it's a cultural phenomenon that didn't really originate in north america um because wrestling is more of a thing in mexico and the polynesian islands where you know historically for a long long time there's been wrestling and so Cobra's son is kind of, he's part Canadian, but he's also part Mexican, so he has that heritage. And it's the same with The Rock, where he's part American, but also part Samoan. Well, Samoan, so has that, Samoan's technically American, but yeah, I see it. It's still two cultures. I mean, Samoan's Caribbean, isn't it? And so it wouldn't have been American. I think that the full title literally is American Samoan. Yeah. So it's literally in that area, but it's an American colony maybe but there would have been wrestling samoans would have been wrestling for a lot longer than they would have been american if that makes sense yeah i, I believe so yeah and yeah. i'm not actually sure about the origins of pro wrestling all i know is i think it started just post-war mm. but i don't know where specifically it started it was the, basically mainly a carnival thing yeah um was why a lot of people refer to it as carny which is a derogatory term in wrestling yeah and it's those people who kind of like scam and fuck other people over the reason that carney is used is because that was the time when they were literally trying to present it as real when it was fake i imagine that it would have originated from strongmen 
Yeah, that, yeah, yeah got, 100%. Yeah, I think got, you're right. If you've got more than one strong man at a carnival, it makes a lot of sense to make them fight, yeah, right? Yeah, have them wrestle. And you, they do the most basic moves. Yeah. And then one of them would jump off a turnbuckle to do a, a, an elbow drop. And back then, that was like seeing now a yeah. reverse Tiger Driver 98. Like, oh, oh my God, he jumped and landed. Like, yeah. That was the equivalent. Uh, what's interesting now is wrestling, like a lot of mediums, has had to evolve mm. and become more complex. And like sports... You know how with sports that they keep breaking world records? Yes. And you the the world record in bloody 1950 doesn't even touch what it is now. Wrestlers have had to do more physically demanding moves over time. Um, and that's more longer matches and everything as well. So that's that physical requirements has become so much more over time where they've become more athletes whereas the wrestlers from like the 50s yeah like i mean bloody look at hulk hogan at any point during his career guy was never an athlete he was big he had muscles he was never an athlete and you you watch it happen in sports and there's there's water there's these different watershed moments for different sports isn't there yeah like you know the um oh god there was somebody made a documentary about her recently with the first woman to nail a triple axel in ice skating yeah um and it's kind of like you know there's they think there's this unbreakable ceiling, like somebody cracking 100 meters in under 10 seconds or whatever. And they think there's this, there's this unbreakable ceiling and then somebody comes along and just moves the sport along 20 years all at once and everybody else has to catch up. Yeah, the, the, the strictest measurement of that for wrestling is for a long time, what was considered a impressive move was called a 630. Mm. 630 is jumping off the turnbuckle and you literally just do a forward roll. Yeah. But like if you do it to 630, you have to go 360 and then you have to go more ahead to yeah. land on your flat on your back. So you've done a full rotation plus a bit to land yeah. face down. So they so that's actually sorry, that's a 450. Yeah. 630 was even more. Another revol- two another rotations. revolution, yeah. And then that was considered the biggest thing. So two ro- mid-air rotations, land face yeah. down on your opponent. And then like the last 10 years someone started doing a 720. Yeah, of course. And of now, course. And that's even only another half rotation landing on your back. But that's like the exact same thing. It's like, bloody hell, now we've got to do 720s now. Like, Jesus Christ. It's like Eddie Hall and Half Your Bjornsson with the deadlifts, isn't it? Yes, exactly. One Someone's, of them did, one of them did 500 program. kilo and the other one went, I'll do 501. <laughs> mm. And we're just going up in twos or threes Yeah, and absolutely. Stuff. Increments. <laughs> but it's the physical requirements of it are quite insane growing um what did you think of the character punishing themselves the guilt the character punishing themselves for the guilt they feel by doing what's called death matches yeah well that's yeah and 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 again that's that point where you kind of you already know that he is the reason that his wife is dead i mean to be fair i still didn't by this point because i'm still looking at all the references uh well this is the thing so i saw him leave the locker room and i was like okay that's a bit weird why have they written that in that mm. doesn't make any like that doesn't it it, it just felt like a it's, too ben- it's information that's given for a reason yeah absolutely and then this male wrestler turns up and he's wrestling and i'm like is that why he just left and then i saw that same guy doing death matches and i was like yeah he definitely killed his wife like that's mm. absolutely what's happened here um yeah i mean i think it's it makes sense doesn't it it's a. I think that's an interesting combination of tropes where you've got the um, the character punishing themselves. Normally, it's something like alcoholism, or maybe yeah. they're doing. Sometimes it's like cage fighting or street fighting, or some they're putting themselves through some physicality 
to inflict pain because they think they deserve it because of their guilt. And I think that combining that, there's a trope in wrestling starred by a guy called Terry Funk. Yeah. And Terry Funk was a guy who, he was a wrestler during like the Hogan era. Yeah. And he was kind of up there with the big ones, but he mm. wasn't, as far as I know, and I might be wrong about this, he wasn't, he didn't draw the fame to himself. He was there among them, yeah. but he wasn't quite, like no one was like, oh my God, Terry Funk's there. But he was, he could do their level. Yeah. And then he realized, I don't really have anything to keep going with this. Yeah. Like all these guys are retiring. I can't match physically with the new generation. Like I yeah. can't do what they do. So he started doing death matches in Japan. Mm. And literally he was like, bloody hit me in the head with a light bulb, uh, with a light tube and yeah. like stab me in the chest with the glass. Yeah. So he's like, I can do this. I can't do, I can't do the stamina of anything yeah. else, but I'll take the pain. And he had a second career into his 80s, I think almost. I think what interested me most about it, and it's so, it, it's it's kind of um, serendipitous that you talked about that Jason Siegel show, mm. because what it did is prolong his grief. And actually what we see is him through the tag team with his daughter and through what happens actually start to process his grief in a meaningful way. And so I feel like actually he was using the pain he was he was kind of holding himself in a state of stasis mm. with all the pain that he was enduring and not processing his grief properly. Yeah, he was literally distracting himself from the from the emotional pain yeah. by by flooding his senses with physical pain. And isn't that just yeah, that's... such a common thing that people do? And I th- I thought it was they took like this aspect of wrestling, the deathmatch wrestling. I thought mm. they used that as a good story trope for yeah. it. Um, I think we've done really well talking a lot about the first couple of issues mm. and we've not even got to what the kind of main plot is. Um, also, just aside, the panel where the puppy is about to be punched yeah. is so funny for, yeah. some, for some reason. They managed, punches a puppy. <laughs> they managed to make that funny. But so we haven't even touched on what is basically the main part of the entire story arc. Yeah. The necromancer character basically says, uh, I'm holding this tag team tournament for wrestlers um and the winner will get i will use my necromancing powers and bring someone back from the dead so naturally loan is immediately like obviously i want to bring my mum back nice little bit where the the, he makes a thing of her mum, and she's like oh my god and then it's just smoke and it dissipates and she's so pissed off in that moment like i thought that was just such a quick little accurate you know um character point i think what i found interesting about this as a storytelling device is it meant Every single person, every single wrestler we see has a tragic backstory. And it means when we see the heels, the obvious heels, the philos, we see both we see one of their tragic backstory. Only a couple panels. Dying boyfriend, I think it was. I think it was kid, wasn't it? Was it a dying kid? I think I think so. I you might know, be wrong. Her her getting into that hospital bed and cuddling that dying person who, you know, has he got months? No, I think it's hours. Um, and it, it made me sympathize with the heels. Yeah. It, it really made me feel for the heels. I mean, even in, in pro wrestling, like any other medium, the best heels are the ones you can sympathize with as well. They're well, the most compelling. That's what Cobra Sun was, wasn't he? He was a, they, him and his wife were part of a tag team before he turned heel. 
And so even to his fans, he would have been the heel that everybody sympathized with because they remembered him as a babyface, right? Potentially. It depends what the breakup for was. Mm. Like, I've, it's a very WWE thing where they'll have tag teams and then one of them just turns around and attacks the other yeah. in a literal heel turn move. The better ones I find is there's ones that are a lot more subtle. There was one tag team of two wrestlers who I'm big fans of. Um, it was Kenny Omega and uh, his most recent partner, Hangman Adam Page. Yeah. And they were a tag team. And the problem uh, with them was that Hangman, the he was losing himself a bit in like kind of not quite alcoholism, but he yeah. was drinking a bit. And Kenny Omega was like teetotal and didn't do anything. The straight edge, um, the, who they were facing, Hangman was like becoming friends with, a team called FTR at the time. Yeah. And when they tried to retain these tag titles and lost them in the end. And Hangman, who was expected to maybe turn heel or lose out or something, he fought so desperately to stop them from losing. Mm. Like, he was putting it all. He was saving the pin. He was saving Kenny from getting pinned. And he was, like, fighting through and eventually just lost out, couldn't help, couldn't fight anymore, and just lost it. And then after the match, you expect, like, who's going to turn on who as the trope we've been conditioned with by yeah. the, the monopoly of WWE. And what happened was Hangman, he sees Kenny in the ring and he's walking over to him and he's so exhausted and he falls forward and Kenny just stands out of the way, lets him fall and just turns around and walks off. So he didn't catch him and he yeah. just walks away. And I, because we were so conditioned on this trope of like, ha, hit you in the back with a steel chair. That was so much more poignant and emotional. The story beat. Yeah. And I think they did a really nice job of it in the comic where the Philos turn on each other. Because neither one of them turned heel. Yep. And that's what you're expecting. You're expecting one of them to turn heel because they both had somebody that they were trying to save. And actually, they just turned on each other and it was this noble, like... We have agreed to fight each other now. Yeah, it, it, it felt a bit battle royale. Yeah, yeah. I like that in this tournament, they could suffer these horrific injuries. And I think it's it was heavily implied that the Necromancer had like magical amazing healing stuff no it was explicitly stated that he had very good doctor well yeah i mean that's i thought that he surely must go somewhat above and beyond that as well well my assumption was that he would be able to save people and i think it's it was the point at which his two the, the when the champions died right? yes they, they both died in the killed ring each other yeah and instead of just bringing them back to life he calls sun and steel out and in my head, I went, he can't bring people back to life. Yeah, that's if he, if he could bring people back to life, he'd just have brought his champions back and have them there ready. But also, to be fair, he did need a winner. Like, tournament yeah. rules, it's like, well, they're disqualified because they're fucking dead now. So yeah. we do need we do need a winner. And that would be tournament rules. Like, whoever yeah. came second, like, they win now. Um, is in the tournament. They have a lot of interesting other teams. And yeah. Falling back to the beginning. The orangutans. Orangutans. <laughs> Just literally a pair of orangutans. Yeah. One older, one younger. And their finisher. Did you see what their finisher is called? No. Their finisher is called, spelt slightly differently, Attenborough's Cradle. I did, yeah. Attenborough's Cradle. I did, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did. And that made me laugh. Yeah, that was a great one. I uh, like how well they captured a mature and juvenile orangutan. Yeah, they were definitely... Um, they were, you could tell not just in size alone, but just in mannerism. Like one was kind of older and wiser and the other was a bit younger and pluckier. And, and just in the way their faces were constructed. Yeah. He, the artist did a really good job on anatomy. Mm. Like I'm, I, I know it sounds like a really silly thing to... No, but that's, but that's, it's good they were 
good at that because this is the topic where you need to have that skill as not yeah absolutely like, like the this anatomy is the, the most in that one of the most anatomy based stories is pro wrestling yeah like it, it made it made a lot of sense to to really focus on the anatomy and because they did i never the art style never dragged me out of it and it was when mm. i saw those two, two orangutans and i was like oh one of them is obviously juvenile mm. that's really that's a really nice touch the uh, opening match of the tournament had a very not trope not overused trope uh tank mm. story but it's one that's used a fair bit and you know if used right it's a very good story it's the one partner not wanting to tank yeah. the other so that you see a lot on what's called like odd couple tank teams yeah so ones where they've kind of been forced together yeah and they both have these the you know bravado and the you know i can do this myself yeah. i don't need your help kind of thing so you know one but this was for a different reason which was the character caring about the other character yeah and not wanting them to get hurt and then she gets in lona she's finally tagged in because she can't take anymore and she's just amazing at it yeah and it's kind of interesting that like she was called green as a literal pro wrestler who was trying to fake it turns out she's really good at legitimately hurting people yeah she's a bit of a beast isn't she mm. and there's kind of an irony that the cobra son is good at it as well because he accidentally hurt someone lethally now he's doing those moves with without trying to be safe at all. Yeah. And is it like a plus? Does he have that as an advantage, or is it was that literally just a one-off mistake? And he's 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 taking effort to unlearn the safety of pro wrestling now by actually trying to hurt people. And this and this is some because you showed me a um a boxing match with a pro wrestler. Yeah. And he's in the middle of a boxing match and he just goes to pick the guy up and it's like, oh, that's learned behavior. Yeah, guy called Bobby Fish, yeah. uh, who is, he's a bit of an older wrestler and to the point where people make jokes about how old he is, like how he was there at the first carnival shows and stuff like that. <laughs> um, so that's Bobby Fish. <laughs> that's what he's known right, for okay. nowadays. And uh, talking about tag team finishers as well, going back to that, the finisher that uh, Cobra and the mum, is it Ewa? Ewer. Ewer. Um, they do is actually an existing move. It's kind of, it's a modified, what's called a doomsday device. Okay. It was done by one of the original greatest tag teams, or what's considered greatest tag team, um, the uh, new the Road Warriors. Okay. So they were two guys who came out in like big shoulder um, covering things with spikes coming out of I them. I know and, who you mean. And one of them yeah. was called Animal, one of them was called Hawk. And they're finished with the doomsday device. They would, guy would get up on the like electric chair place and the other one would clothesline them mm. off. But this one, they close on and Hobosan puts him in a power bomb. Yeah. It's kind of modified as in that way. But it's, uh, for me and any wrestling fans listening, I'm always like, that's that move. That's that move by those people. So yeah. I'm still having that reaction a lot. I think the fact that they kind of grew into being a tag team, that was, it was that moment when they pulled that move off together that I teared up. That's good. And I did mention to you that I teared up, didn't yep. I? And, that's, and it was, that was the, the pre-storytelling, um, oh, sorry, the foreshadowing of that move being like, this is the move that you, you and uh, me and your mum used to do. Yeah. And did you get that? Like, well, they're going to do it later. Yeah, I did. And when, it had, when I got that payoff, I was like, oh, he did such a good job. Yeah. I Friendship mean, it, is magic. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of bronies. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, uh, one thing I noticed was the page layout was particularly uh, good for the two kickouts sorry the um oh one two kick three out, kick yeah. out yeah, so yeah, the, yeah you literally get the the ref counting a pin after a big move one two and that would be the bottom right panel of the page and then you turn the page and it's the new one is yeah 
kick out like or three like they the page there really paid off the mm. the close kickouts so i thought that was pretty smart page layout for this storytelling speaking of kickouts how did you feel about the fact they actually lost the match to the philos because you're building up to them winning right and the philos killing each other kind of feels like a deus ex machina to me a little bit yeah um so the actual i agree with you in that kind of deus ex machina thing i think it was still interesting yeah it didn't and we know later that we'll get to a point, but it's not just the be all. It's not like yes. everything saved afterwards. So I think that saves it from being a Deus Ex Machina for me. Yeah, it's more like a story beat, and it was interesting. So I'll I'll allow it. Yeah, the fact that they lost for me was actually more predictable than any of the actual predictable story tropes. Oh, and really? The reason is there's a one glaring difference between uh, normal storytelling and pro wrestling. Right. So in normal storytelling. The good people or the protagonists win most of the time. Whereas right? in pro wrestling, the heel will win it's, at least half the time. It's, yeah, it's more like 50 50. Yeah. So, because um, what you always have is you're always, any pro wrestling company, you're always trying to build up the, the big bad guy, yeah. big baddie being taken down by the righteous baby face, yeah. everyone's behind him hero, right? So that's the the end point for your biggest shows in an ideal world you know there's variations obviously yeah. there's differences but that's like the core trope you want to yeah, aim for okay. so in doing that you have to build up baby faces and heels and with the faces you have them winning over bad guys and with the heels you have them winning over faces yeah. so you've got this kind of 50 50 across the board of like good guys and bad guys winning who's on the way up and who's on the way down depending exactly. on where you are in the story arc right? exactly yeah and so you want that to come together in the end and then it's but even when you get to that big point you still don't want the good guys winning all the time even when you have those this is the end point this is yeah. the, the final match kind of thing because if they win all the time that becomes predictable you lose the tension so even that the final boss has to be about 50 50 yeah to a degree i think it was cool that cobra sun insisted it was a death match yes that, that was, was cool. really fun like he upped the ante and he was like the thing that i've been doing to run from the grief is now the thing i'm using to to charge straight forward at yeah. it and it and it did it felt like a sports story like a sport film you know and yeah. you've got you've got the kind of semi-retired veteran who's fallen to the lower leagues and is now kind of doing really badly and he's a bit of a tragic figure who has to rise back up again to, you know, help the plucky newcomer rise through the ranks. It has that feel, doesn't it? Yeah, and a lot of elements of The the Wrestler by Darren Aronofsky. So that is mm. the old, retired, past his prime, coming back for one more shot of glory kind of thing. Rocky Balboa, Rocky Three. you know? It's, it's, exactly. it's that same kind of vibe. And so the fact that he then took this, well, you know, I've been doing the death matches to entertain the people and kind of numb the pain. But now I'm dusting off the old barbed wire the covered barbed, baseball bat. Barbed wire baseball bat, yeah. But good, right? <laughs> yeah, and the light tubes especially as well. Yeah, well, the light tubes are a big thing in wrestling, aren't they? In deathmatch wrestling specifically. Mm. You won't see them in any other kind of wrestling. Yeah. When, you, when they break out light bulbs, it's like, oh, this is a deathmatch. Like, that's for sure. And when I saw the chair come out, that it sucked me back to the early mid to mid noughties in primary mm. school hearing my school friends who were really into wrestling go, give him the chair! Yeah. You Get know. the chair! Yeah, and that, and that was a thing in like noughties, 90s WWE, wasn't yeah. it? 
Did you ever see the meme? It was, uh, I laughed so hard at it. It's the meme where when Trump was being inaugurated, and mm. it was like, we're here live at the inauguration, and oh my God, what is that? Bernie Sanders coming down <laughs> with the steel chair. <laughs> and someone just photoshopped Bernie Sanders on the raw ramp coming down to the ring. <laughs> I love that. Um, oh, that's wonderful. Did you get the tension from the what's called the desperate hot tag? So the tagging yes. of the so that's a that's literally like a, every single tag match you'll ever see has a, a hot tag. Yeah, it's when the people you're rooting for the baby faces normally that's one of them has been beaten down for a bit and yeah. they're trying to get and the other one's like desperately like reaching in like come on tag me in and they keep getting pulled back and they keep getting cut off and eventually they get through and the person who comes in the hot tag is literally comes in and just like destroys the two who have they're been, fresh. Yeah, right? they're fresh. Like, they've got the energy. Those two, the other team have been using their energy to keep down the partner yeah so now they come in and bang like take down one take down one do the moves you know it's it's one of the funnest tropes of like a hot tag it's great to watch but they played with it in a really nice way because it was him watching his daughter get almost beaten to death and so it added so much power to it didn't it yeah and what was also a great wrestling trope was the the team fiso um attacking uncle blood after the bell yeah that was very traditional very effective heel tactics yeah for what's called a long long-term story yeah so it's not the story of that individual match but you know who they're facing next in the tournament yeah and you know what they mean so it's beating down a character to gain help the baby face gain sympathy and get what's known as heat on the yeah. bad guys so the fact that it made sense within the context of the story as well, but mm. it's also a pro wrestling trope, I thought was a they quite made genius. It work, didn't they? Yeah, um, things like that. Like I just had flashbacks to seeing it all the times, and it's one of those things where, like with other stories, they'll redo the same kind of trope. Like mm. you know, like with stories, the hero's journey and that and three act structure and stuff like that. And it's about who can do it, who can reinvent it in an interesting way, or not mm. even just reinvent it, who can do it in an interesting way. Yeah. The, um, that just you know surprises people or is like oh this is the best way i've seen it done so far yeah or just in an interesting enough way that you go this was entertaining this entertained me and with the whole death match uh thing uh for me the i said that the light bulb the light tubes were one signified the other signifier of a lot of hardcore matches not necessarily death match but thumbtacks. the bag of thumbtacks yeah the bag of thumbtacks is like the signifier in hardcore matches whereas like like with the light bulb tubes yeah. you see that and go oh my god he's got the thumbtacks uh the thing with a lot of non-wrestling fans is they assume that stuff like the weapons and the blood are fake or gimmicked no they razor blade themselves don't they so the blood is what's yeah literally called blading which i think i've explained to you before but yeah they cut themselves yeah and i can see why people just assume it's like fake blood whatever i mean most wrestling outfits are a little bit too skimpy to hide a squib exactly that's and (laughs) there's nowhere to put a squib is there exactly and it's the same with the weapons as well people think like oh they're like fake movie weapons or whatever but what they don't realize is that these literally come from these techniques come from the bottom up yeah so when rinky dinky little indie shows where people are getting bloody 20 bucks for a to, for a death match. they can't afford a fake chair so no. they have to learn how to hit you with one without hurting you and they've gone to home depot and got bo- a, a box of thumbtacks and some yeah. light tubes so they're just literally like we just need to work out how to hit each other or stab each other with these things and not cause permanent injury like yeah. as long as you're all right on the night and you can be all right you can walk the next day that's or even if you can't walk the next day as long as you can walk as, as long as you can heal at yeah. some point then it's fine so a lot of people think things like the thumbtacks are fake. The only thing that's even close to gimmicked is somewhat gimmicked 
is when they use barbed wire. No, only because there's two types of barbed wire. Barbed normal barbed wire has the spikes. Yeah. Industrial barbed wire has the blades. Yeah, razor blades. Yeah. So the razor blades one is never used in wrestling for mm. obvious reasons. The spiked one is like the really cheap. So if a weapon's used in wrestling, it's the really cheap, cheap yeah, version. Absolutely. It's still technically real, but it's the cheap one. With the gimmick barbed wire, what they'll do is they'll take the cheap one and they'll remove like half of the barbs. Yeah. So it's still barbed wire by the strictest sense, technical term, but it's less dangerous than normal barbed wire. Yeah. So, but that's like, that's a little like, for me, realizing this stuff or finding out this stuff, I was like, that made me more impressed by the wrestlers who do this stuff, especially consensually. Like, you, I'm going to drop you on thumbtacks and the other wrestler, like, great. Like, yeah, nice one. Cheers for that. But then you have some wrestlers who are literally like, great, I love that. Like, guy, uh, famously, <laughs> That's the only reason I'm relevant. <laughs> yeah, guy called uh, Mick Foley, one of the nicest guys yeah. in the business, like, uh, beloved by everyone. He was literally like, I'm taking a thumbtack spot tonight. Brilliant. Like, <laughs> same guy who dropped off the Hell in the Cell by The Undertaker yeah. in uh, 89, I think it was. There was another uh, wrestling trope, which uh, I don't know if this was raised tension for you at all or not, but the mask being ripped off. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, you know, the idea of a mask being ripped off is provocative in whatever context. And I know, obviously, for uh, Mexican wrestlers, that is the worst thing that can happen to you is that you are unmasked. Well, what's, yeah, what they've done smartly is they've, I say, like, Mexican wrestling doesn't have much storytelling. That's one of the few things they're like, we can make a story out of this. Yeah. Because we put so much weight in the masks, they'll have like loser, loser's mask matches and stuff like that to just add tension. Stuff. And it was a mask that he'd inherited from his dad. And it was exactly. part of, you know, um, Lona has this really strong wrestling heritage and that's part of her wrestling heritage just being ripped off. And obviously it was a really important story beat as well. Like I was waiting for the, his mask to get ripped off because that was the only way that he was going to let her know who he was, was by accident when his mask got ripped off. And truthfully, that was the only surprise I saw coming. That was the only one that I was like, yeah. I know his identity is going to be revealed. It's probably going to be mid-match mask. He's going to get, yeah. And it, and it really ruined her match. It really threw her off, didn't it? And so it was a really powerful story, B, and it also had repercussions, which I liked. Um, and there's a lot in a mask, you know. I think the, the mask is a really powerful construct. I mean, in storytelling, it's the one of the biggest metaphors. Like someone wearing a mask, yeah, absolutely. Is, is He's on a mask, hiding identity, being your true self, or you know, Batman and masks. It's a whole thing, isn't it? And it was in that match that I feel like they really bonded as two wrestlers, which is also the point at which they really bonded as a father and daughter, which is the point at which they started to grieve. And you know, his death matches he'd been doing was the way that he was avoiding his grief. And so the metaphorical resonance of that being the moment that that mask came off and we stopped seeing him as the wrestler and started seeing him as the father and the bereaved husband again. Mm. You know, on, on so many levels, it was metaphorically resonant that the mask had to come off and it was a great moment for the mask to come off for me. Yeah. And so it had a lot of resonances for me. Obviously, it didn't resonate with me probably in the same way it did for you. I think that you were kind of seeing it as, oh, he's a wrestler who's just been unmasked, whereas I was thinking of it in a more metaphorical sense. Well, what's interesting is, I think I got some of the similar vibes from what you're describing, uh, but also wrestlers losing their masks is actually... Uh, wrestlers losing their mask and you seeing their faces is very rare. Yeah. So there's, I've seen quite a few mask spots 
where someone will rip a mask off, but mm. the wrestler, like all you know, you know pre-rehearse and everything, they immediately cover their face yeah. and they have to duck away, and you just you still don't really see their face. Yeah. Uh, the trope here, though, specifically, is the ripped open mask. So the ripped open mask is interesting because a lot of those kind of masks, they can be ripped open without still coming apart or the face like fully being revealed. Um, so that, along with the blood running down as well, that's commonly used because you can do it without showing the person's identity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it still has that sudden shock of seeing someone who you normally see week to week fully masked every time that's the face that you now know of them, yeah and seeing that face ripped up with just a normal human under yeah and the blood showing and the vulnerability that is how uh, some heels get in what they call nuclear heat because yeah. the people are like we love this person and you're even if you don't like that can gain sympathy for them but yeah. they're like this looks horrible what you're doing to this person. You're literally like ripping open their vulnerability yeah. to us and you're doing it with malice and like with like, not even like by accident, like intention. Yeah. And that, so that sight in the cop, in the comic, it reminded me of all the times that it successfully done its job in actual live wrestling. And then what we see, I'm going to bounce us along to, to the end, the fight with God. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was literally like fucking issue six and there's God. What? Yeah. But something that the necromancer does is just before the fight with God, he clicks and they have new costumes. Yeah. And it's an, an updated version of their mask. Now, I think it's really telling that a necromancer gives him his new mask because it is his mask, but it is now with a consistent color theme with his daughter. Right. And it's a necromancer who brings people back from the dead and he is taking away his old mask giving him a new mask and it's kind of like that it felt like an element of rebirth mm, that, ne- it the, was an element of like standing there in the ring in front of everyone new new attire it was a rebirth wasn't yeah. it and so the necromancer wasn't able to bring his wife back to life and that's the reason he fights god yeah because he's not able to but he says i know somebody who i think will have the power to it's God. He's also a fan of pro wrestling. <laughs> the greatest line in a comic I've ever read. It's... By the way, God's a fan of wrestling as well. I made my day. <laughs> but the but he 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 gave them new life in that moment, and yes. he he it felt as though he was freeing them from their grief in a really unhealthy way. In a kind of, in the sense of, well, I can free you from your grief by giving you the opportunity to bring this person back to life. And I suppose they have done a bit of the work themselves as well. Oh yeah, they've done they've done a lot of the hard graft. But but can you see where I'm coming from? Yeah, it's There's... a it's a kind of tainted rebirth in a way. Yeah, I think it's uh, telling that the necromancer could not deliver what he promised yeah. in bringing them back, <laughs> and I think that does speak to the. It speaks to the uh, constant running of pro wrestling where the goal is never really reached. Yeah, absolutely. There's a trope of the mountain being climbed by the person finally winning the championship. Yeah. But once they've won the championship, that's actually a bit louder now you've got it there. Is it? Yeah. No, no, it's a bit louder in the sense I just have to change it later. Okay. The, um, we'll get you you one of these next. Yeah. Um, Obviously the champion can win the championship and climb the mountain and it's a beautiful moment when it happens. But then they have to be the champion, and then yeah. they the 
common saying is it's easy to win the championship it's harder to keep it and yeah and so they're constantly defending exactly and then they lose her eventually and they have to reconcile with the loss and then they have to decide what the, to do with the character then and yeah so it speaks to this like it's a never-ending you never reach the goal you're always going forward um there is an somewhat of an ending here which is is interesting um well it's so you remember earlier you asked me do you see the dragon ball reference Right, yep, the Goku in Limbo, yep. Yeah, so so this leads me on to something that you asked me right at the top that I wasn't allowed to spoil. Yes, and now we're at the appropriate time for you to get into it. Yeah, so it references it as it being like Dragon Ball. Right. And yeah, I do see the similarity. And so there are parts of Dragon Ball and Dragon Ball Z where Goku goes to Limbo. Goku is in this liminal space between life and death. He's technically dead, but he's having his life again. And what we see at the very end of the comic book is the mum cheering the mom. Yeah. And so God can't bring her back, but what he has done is brought them into a space that she currently exists in. Yeah. So they've they've lost the match against God. Yeah. And I think it did a good job of getting you to a point where you go, oh my God, they're actually going to... And that's peak pro wrestling yeah. is getting that what they call biting on a on a pinfall is that you believe for a sh- second there yeah. oh my god they're actually gonna win and it's someone who you never thought was gonna win and it's literally god who they're wrestling yeah and that split second we go oh my god they're actually gonna do it and then he kicks out and then they lose yeah that's peak pro wrestling where it just gives you that little second of like this could be it and then you go oh no it wasn't and it was quite a powerful scene but what it does is it it shows you that the relationship with death that we have in this world. One of the key contemplations of the text is what happens to us after we die. Yeah. Lona, the, the moment in the text where we really see the relationship between Lona and her mum, Lona is in bed with her mum asking her what happens after she dies. Mm. And she says, well, that's not going to happen to me for a long time. And then she dies and we see her after death. And so I think there is this kind of agnosticism, maybe, um, where we're where we're seeing quite a soft relationship with death, we're seeing death as not being something permanent, not being something final. Yeah, and I don't know yet if I think this is representative of the idea that actually we only die once people forget us, or if it, which again is quite a Mexican ideal, isn't it? That's a South yep. American ideal, or if we're seeing we're being presented here with a world where there is a limbo state where people get to exist and remain in some kind of corporeal form after death, or actually what we're seeing is Lona achieve something that she knows her mum would be proud of, and actually is this is a moment for her to finalise and come to terms with her grief. Mm. Really excited for there to be an issue eight. So we can work this out. Is there going to be an issue eight? See, I was just going to mention this. So first I was going to say, I think the ending is is ambiguous enough that it, it could mean any of those things you've just listed. And I think that's a good ending. Yeah, it's so a great we, ending. But we still know canonically like what the literal ending is, where they didn't win, but she got this memory and that's enough, good enough in the meantime. Mm. And then her, the mum being in the audience, it's just that little bit extra like, ooh, could mean this, could mean yeah. this. Could mean, like that's, I like that level of ambiguity in an ending because we get the hard ending and then yeah. a little bit extra. Um, in terms of the issue length, it might have just been this seven issues, but I feel like this is one where hopefully it's successful enough that they go back to them like, where's the next volume? Like, yeah. give us volume two. And because it's it's not called like 
um, steel flout or steel rows like do wrestling or mm. anything like that. It's just called do a power bomb. So it's like I want to see volume two of do a power bomb with different characters potentially. Mm. Let's just let this world. We know there's this interdimensional world where wrestling is real. Yeah. Let's have more wrestlers from Earth and with different stories and different things. Let's have them, you know, and their stories go through. Um, so fingers crossed that we get that. Yeah. Um, but it was a solid ending, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I thought it was a good ending and it just made me want more, which is ultimately the best ending Yeah, of absolutely. A comic. And it left me, it left me feeling, it left me in a kind of emotional void space. That was a fucking pretentious way of phrasing that. Emotional void space. I didn't know how to feel about it. <laughs> like, I, I had some emotions, right? It yeah. made me feel something. Sure. Which is all I can ask from something that I'm reading or watching is that it actually makes me feel something. Because I'm so fucking numb. And then um, <laughs> the next step is, well, the next step will be showing you some pro wrestling, which will elicit the same feelings. Yeah. Um, but it made me feel something and I wasn't quite sure what it made me feel. And that is a really enjoyable sensation to have at the end of a piece of fiction, right? Yeah, like, fantastic. That's what fiction should do. Yeah. We might, I might have to show you some wrestling this weekend. Oh, God. <laughs> it might happen. Oh, God. Um, one last little bit that I just made notes on that I just wanted to get across. Here we go. Is the last kind of few moves of the wrestling match with God. Were they special? A couple of them are very special. So one is great. It's an AEW reference. Right. Um, there's a move that God does where the announcer, he's shouting all the names anyway, but yeah. this one he shouts, Tiger Driver 98. That's an AEW reference because that's one of Kenny Omega's moves. Uh, and there's a re- there's an announcer called Excalibur who also mm. wears a mask. Um, he used to be a wrestler. Now he's considered a great modern announcer. Yeah. Great play-by-play. And his thing is that he knows all the wrestling moves. Like, that's kind right. of his gimmick. Yeah, like yeah. He, he knows more wrestling moves than any other announcer or yeah. some, even a lot of wrestlers even. So And the running joke is that Excalibur will just be like watching a match and they'll do some like weird flippy shit. And he's like, oh my God, like battle stations 84 or whatever, like he just a just random knows. name. Yeah, he just knows them. But that that trope, that joke started with him shouting, Tiger Driver 98, whenever he did it. Oh, that's really, so it really is a deep cut for the wrestling fans. Yes. And what's also, that's Kenny Omega's move. Then... There was uh, Cobra-san doing a Snapdragon move, which is another of Kenny Omega's famous moves. And it's a great one. It's oh, He's the only person I've seen do it. But Snapdragon is where you basically get your arms under like a full, you know, full Nelson hold. Yeah, yeah. But then you get here and you just throw them. <laughs> <laughs> what you didn't see is that in demonstrating that wrestling move, Ryan threw his headphones off. I was doing it to the cat and then my own headphones came off. <laughs> that's staying in <laughs> of course I, I can't i can't cut that out now that's gonna have to be animated with just like <laughs> falling headphones falling off someone so is the implication here that kenny omega is god i mean i'm i'm, I'm not saying that rightly, but i'm saying you know the math adds up, you know is this your way of trying to get kenny omega on the podcast oh, that would be amazing <laughs> but what's especially uh, Cobra Sun does the Snapdragon. And yeah, that's an awesome move. A lot of big neck. Can bump, I see the Snapdragon again? <laughs> Do I have to get the cat? Like, and then, uh, you're gonna hear just like the microphone tumbling, like, <laughs> like 
Ryan lost his life attempting a snapdragon. Just in case there's any animal rights people listening. We're not doing moves to the cat. Yeah, Ryan doesn't have my cat in a full Nelson. That well, didn't happen. With both received actual um, in blood injuries from the cat while trying to do this podcast because yeah. we're so dedicated to this topic. Absolutely. Um, the, he's been blading us. She's been blading us all, all over little marks on the hands. She turned heel because she's in season. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> a common reason people turn heel. Absolutely. Humans and animals like i turned i got really horny so i turned heel (laughs) (laughs) just sounds wrong (laughs) the last bit is the the finishing move that god does he picks both um lona and cobra-san picks them up Mm. the way he picks them up that move so i wrote that down so the actual move itself is called the one-winged angel yeah but the way he did it he did a double avalanche one-winged angel because it was from the top rope. So it was a two-winged angel. So it's a, no, it's a double one-winged angel. But the which re- is a two-winged angel. Yeah, essentially. <laughs> but that that is called that because that's a Final Fantasy reference, and that's uh... a Final Fantasy reference. That's a Final. Sa- oh, I can't even say it. That's a Final Fantasy reference well for a character I think called Sephiroth or Sephiroth. Sephiroth. Yeah. yeah, who is the favorite video game character of? One Kenneth Omega. So they really doubled down on really, the Kenny Omega stuff. Really doubled down on Kenny Omega being God. That's also a nice little Neponophile moment for... He's the Alpha and the Omega. He is He's the Alpha <laughs> and the Omega. And that comes up, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. And I'm like, we'll see. And they did the move. And I'm like, oh my God, it's Kenny Omega. <laughs> yes. Oh, that... Right. So that didn't make any sense to me. What, that he was calling himself the, the Alpha and the Omega? Yeah, no, it didn't make any sense to me, but well, now that you... He's God, so it, it makes sense in itself, yeah. in a vacuum. No, it made sense in on that level, mm. but I kind of saw it and I was like, that's weird phrasing. That's just a weird phrase for God to say. To know? just be like, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Yeah, but yeah. now that you have contextualized it, it's a fun pun, isn't it's, it? It's also a deep cut as well. Like, mm. it's not something I would even expect every... Um, wrestling fan to know if they've just been a fan of wwe yeah or even just mexican wrestling then you might not know who that is so it's it's one to know if you're in the weeds to a certain amount yeah but for the people who do did get it like myself i was like that's fine that's great (laughs) i should say obligatory kenny omega might be the greatest wrestler who's ever lived who's still wrestling today the other one might be a guy called brian danielson who is also very amazing not so many brian danielson references here but that's because he never wrestled in new japan yeah so I think because Kenny Omega was from New Japan, this guy, the writer was like, I love New Japan. That's why. There's the other one uh, who suspiciously was not mentioned here, a guy called Kuzuchika Okada. Yeah. And he is like one of the best wrestlers of his generation of all time. He had a 700 day title reign in New yeah. Japan, which was insane for the time. Um, but yeah. So a big story. These guys might be the best. So Kenny Omega is a bit of an Aponophile, right? Uh, it, what, it depends on what that word means. I don't, I don't want to attribute him with something bad. He likes Japan. Yes. Yeah, he's big Sorry, Japan-ed. so Nippon is the Japanese word for Japan. Right. So somebody likes... The, the, I heard file and I was like, I'm going to be careful here. Yeah, no, I know. There's a yeah, certain yeah. group of people who have ruined the file suffix for everybody else. Audio files. Um, the yeah, worst. It's the audio files. <laughs> they've ruined it for all of I us. I spent a thousand pounds on a speaker. Like, shut up. Because <laughs> I am a bibliophile. Right. And a you little love, bit. You love a, Bibles. Yeah, love Bibles. And I'm a little bit of a Nipponophile as love well. Love nipples. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, Ken, uh, is it safe to assume that Kenny Omega. Yeah, yeah. he's, uh, he's a, a Japanese citizen now. He's a Japanese citizen who has a favorite Final Fantasy VII character. Yeah. So, yeah, so 
Kenny Omega, if you happen to be listening, Ryan really likes you big muchly. Big muchly. Um, and so if you are listening, reach out to us because we are doing manga month at some point. Oh and yeah. So you can like we can we can Skype you in and you can hang out for manga month. He'll love that. I mean, he'll be all about that. To be fair. Yeah, you can like teach us about weird. Teach us how comics. to do a one-winged angel without breaking our necks. Oh, mate, if, if Kenny Omega wants to teach me how to do a fucking wrestling move, <laughs> I'm there. That is, I don't even know who the guy... I, I, I know who the guy is, but I'll show I don't you. know who the guy is. I'll show you good beer Kenny Omega clips as soon as we, as soon as we wrap yeah, up here. but, you know, if he, wa- if he wants to fucking throw me over his shot, I'm game. Yeah. That sounds like great fun. This might have been the longest episode we've uh, we've done. Fucking two we're hit, hours. We're in the two-hour mark, so uh, do you want to take us home? Yeah, so thank you so much for listening. Um, It's been a wonderful time that has been had by all. Um, if you'd like to see Ryan at some point in the distant future. The 2030, 2040 run then. He's going to start releasing YouTube videos under Comic Stance. Yes. I have a thriving TikTok account under Byronic Monkeys. Um, I also once made a video about uh, Greek uh, Norse mythology called Myths of Sad Grownups. You can find that on YouTube. Thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful time. And? We have an email address. Yep. And do you remember what it is? comic literate podcast at gmail.com never the it's always i i probably in high i should have put the podcast in because that seems to be where you go comic literate at gmail.com exactly yes and podcasts are now published and available uh wherever you get your podcasts from let's yeah, say yeah wherever you get your podcasts from like we're on spotify and like google podcast pretty cool it's so it's surprisingly low bar to of entry to get in turns out they'll take anyone so yeah, we're I there know, now but it, it made my day yeah it was fun <laughs> seeing it so um, but yeah, if you are Kenny Omega and you do want to come on the podcast, comicliterate at gmail.com, and subject heading Double Winged Angel. Don't get jelly Alan Moore. You know, you're not you're not the favourite every month. Oh yeah, Alan Moore, please, please email <laughs> us. Like, I, re- I, re- I really want to chat. <laughs> Thank you and good night. <laughs> good night, goodbye. <laughs>